Hey everyone, welcome to What Are You Watching? I'm Alex Withrow and I'm joined as always by my best man, Nick Dostal. How you doing there, Miss Sloan? I'm excited to be here. Good. Nice. Was that you had like kind of a, an air of Chastain to you there? Jessica Chastain. It's genuinely hard to think of the last time a major movie star was announced to us seemingly overnight, but like remember 2011 when a nearly unheard of Jessica Chastain was in like, it's some like seven movies, four of which were major releases. One of them landed her an Oscar nomination. The Tree of Life was definitely my introduction to Jessica Chastain. It came out that year. And that's probably true of a lot of people. But as it's just kind of cool as we get into talking about Chastain, who's a genuine bona fide American movie star of her generation, of which there aren't that many. You hear me kind of rant about this all the time. But you know, audiences didn't really know who she was in 2010, but then damn near all movie audiences knew who she was by 2012. And as we rev up here for Jessica Chastain, what was your introduction to her? Same as you, Tree of Life. Yeah. Because you're kind of taking in that movie with everything that it's giving you. Right. I mean, we'll get into it when we talk about that movie. Once I saw her, I, I was like, okay, she's a different level. Like, even in, in just that one performance, I'm like, there's something here. And that's what's so exciting about talking about her is like, this is an actor's actor. Yeah. It, it, it's tough to, you know, talk about acting in, in these ways, but she is somebody that is a true acting nerd. I love listening to her speak about acting and her process, which is so rare. I usually can't stand it. I, I find actor talk to be insufferable. But when she talks about it, it's an education. Very well said. I, I too find it insufferable. Um, typically when it's being said by someone who just, you know, isn't that um, intelligent to begin mm -hmm. with. <laughs> and, yeah. and she just possesses clearly a great amount of intellect in life in her craft and and when i said you know like overnight success before that's obviously meant with quotes because it's always silly to say something like that because for a 2011 to break the way it does for jessica chastain you have to put a shitload of work into yeah. it beforehand which is what you're talking about because i mean no one's that damn lucky and she's born and raised in sacramento she's by her own admission incredibly shy insecure she attends juilliard which is if you're talking to actors actor and an acting nerd there you go and she studies alongside her still good friend and amazing collaborator oscar isaac and that's one of the things that i always appreciate about chastain's best work as well i mean it's okay i'm just gonna say this up top it's okay if a performer a movie star whatever you want to call it is not in universally amazing movies it's yeah. okay there's a lot of shit that goes on in hollywood like deals stuff that producers owe each other so actors are they're forced contractually to be in this amount of movies by a studio i i'm just saying like not every movie reference today is an a-plus movie and that is it's okay it's a career that spans several years my overall point is that we always end these episodes with our top fives and this was genuinely tough for me because when she is on and when Oof. she hits i was like man i i have I have like eight or nine here that I can defend really, really passionately. And sometimes we might even look at an, a whole actor's body of work and go, yeah, they're an amazing performer, but you may not be able to pull out like eight 
really, really great performances. Maybe some great actors only have, I don't know, three or four. So the reality for most actors, the body of work ends up being a lot of that's just what I got in a way. Mm -hmm. You know, like Mm -hmm. a lot of stars have to align when you get that one perfect vehicle for that one perfect performance that gives you that star level. And, you know, looking at her biography of all the films that she's done, there is clear like she's been working her way up and she got what she got and then she did what she did with it. And that's all that counts. It doesn't really matter what the roles you got were. It's what you did with them when you had them. And looking at her body of work, there is not a performance that she does not give all of herself to. And I think that's the job. A lot of people are just too focused on, as far as actors are concerned, like having these perfect cultivated careers that we shouldn't. I don't know where that idea came from, but I, you and I love actors of all generations and you know, I've seen almost every Marlon Brando movie. There are some very bad ones in there, <laughs> and there are some not very good performances. It's okay. Yeah. Some people just tend to harp on a little too much about the misses and the misfires mm-hmm. and what we are trying to do really on every episode, but on this one as well. It's like, okay, if you've only seen blank, blank, and blank, we'll give you some indie B-sides here that will reveal a completely new Chastain to you. So... The one thing that I want to bring up is her uh, experience with Juilliard. Yes, please. Is please. she was talking on the Sam Jones podcast, which is an excellent episode. She talks about how she always knew she wanted to be an actor. And when she started to see that um, people that she knew were going to Juilliard, she just sort of almost manifested in a way that she could do that herself. And I love the story. She she did a an audition where she played Juliet from Romeo and Juliet as a monologue. And she made the choice of making her, for lack of a better term, extremely horny. Yeah. And she's a virgin and she's really excited that she's losing her virginity tonight. Yeah. Yeah. Bold choice. Bold <laughs> choice. And so she's like yeah. writhing on the floor and all of that. And, and she was like... Either that was a choice that either they'll feel like as Shakespeare scholars, oh, that that's it's so inappropriate, that would never be, or they'd be impressed by exactly the boldness of her choices. Needless to say, she got into Juilliard and um, went on to go from there. But I love that she made that choice, because that's what we talk about with choices. If uh, on this podcast, you'll hear that word a lot, especially in episodes like this, we're talking about actors, is making those bold choices. Yes, choices is a word I absolutely think of when I think of Chastain, because, again, when she is on and when she's doing her powerhouse work, she's you can see the wheels spinning and all those choices being made and paying off. And this is one thing I did for this episode that um, I also kind of harken back to the Amy Adams episode, but a little bit differently this time where... Um, Watching her filmography, I kept noticing the same attributes. Mm -hmm. So there's this thing, the moment before, before any character makes a debut or not a debut, but they enter into a scene. What's going on emotionally right before that moment? She is a master at this. Posture, grace, 
the way she flows the in physically how that's involved into her character but she she just carries a certain grace with her that I think is that's not even acting that's just who she is but it translates really well power language voice these things are magnetic when they're firing and so I'll come back to these throughout her performances but these were some of the things that I just kind of want to rattle off in the beginning to kind of like plant seeds as to what makes her stand out. You know, it's funny because you're you're rattling those off and I have a few of those definitely in my head. And even as you're saying those, I'm like, that really describes her performance in blank. Like I'll just say yep. I really was thinking of Crimson Peak when you were talking about what she like brings into the scene before. Cause like, I mean, again, we'll get into it, but Oh my God, her character introduction in Crimson Peak just at the piano and she spins is like, yeah, it's just so good. And she's bringing so much into it. Oh, I love it. I love it. But okay, cool. Yeah, let's get into it. So we're going to, I'm going to start a little out of order here because her big break post Juilliard is she gets cast in one of the oddest, most avant-garde productions I've ever seen, which is this thing called Wild Salome. So Oscar Wilde wrote this tragic play, Salome. A very long time ago and Al Pacino is obsessed with it like Pacino in real life so he decides to all right let me get this right put on a stage production of the play make a movie adapted from that play and then make a documentary about the making of all three things at the same time so it's like okay the result is a three-hour uh avant-garde behemoth thing that is available on YouTube that I watched for a fee it was it was really something. Um, but <laughs> the overall point here is that Chastain is the lead and she is front and center for all of this next to Al Pacino. Pacino is her scene partner on stage. It's really cool just to kind of see her advocating for herself. Pacino giving her the courage and the security and the comfort to really fight for what her character wants. And and it's a tough role because I thought of her Juilliard that audition because she has a scene Salome has a scene where she dances for Pacino's character and she gets naked and all this stuff and it's very animalistic and it's but they filmed that in kind of the late 2000s and it never it, it was released later after Chastain became famous but that thing that weird thing that not a lot of people saw started the wheels in Hollywood you know, we're going to talk about how this led to this and this and this, but... Can you imagine starting your acting career working with Al Pacino? Like, oh yeah, my and he God. Is, he's way, way in, like, Pacino theater territory here. His voice that he's doing, like, he's way, way out there. But probably the coolest thing about Wild Salome is seeing them together, you know, mm -hmm. as a fan of hers and obviously as a fan of Pacino's, just seeing them work together. And she has said in many, many interviews, including when the movie eventually came out, that like I have a quote written here that Al became my greatest acting teacher. Everything I am on film and theater, even who I am as a person, I'm sure it's because of the time I got to spend with Al. That's I mean, hey, that's a great way to go off and do your dream and be an actor in in Hollywood. So here you go. Oh. And that's what she does. And we're going to get started. I got goosebumps. I got goosebumps, baby. Exactly. We'll start us off here in 2008 with Jolene, because this is an indie movie that comes out and it's kind of, you know, looking at her body of work, this thing's here. And then there's a few really small roles, but then we get to her 
insane 2011 year but jolene is an indie that she's in she's in damn near every frame of it i don't think there's more you could probably ask for in in terms of trying to make your career for yourself by getting an indie movie like this where the whole entire weight of the movie falls on you and she gets to work alongside some pretty pretty awesome actors our guy dermot mulroney it's definitely clear to see in this movie like you are watching a a star making performance in the making i want to say like it's not quite yeah. there but she's mm-hmm. so good in it that y- you have to take notice she's making a stand i'm here to stay watch me i hadn't seen it before this and i really saw she was like being teed up for what is about to come next which is just by everyone's account this really really wild single year for one actor to have we're going to start here with the debt which is directed by john madden and you know it she's playing a young helen mirren which is really fun and this was it was released kind of uh wide in 2011 and she's in total badass mode there's some there's pretty tough scenes here um uncomfortable gynecological exams being done by a former nazi on her tough stuff but she's game yeah yeah it was Coriolanus, which is directed and starring Ralph Fiennes, it's, you know, now she's doing the Shakespeare thing. So she's checking off these boxes. Texas Killing Fields is, you know, throwaway police detective serial killer movie. And then Take Shelter, which is directed by Jeff Nichols and premieres at Cannes. And, you know, she's the wife of a small town man, Michael Shannon, who's slowly losing his mind. Upon rewatching it, I really like, I think the strength of her performance and that comes down to her final scene the final scene of the movie and it really reminded me that like the best special effect in a movie is an actor changing their mind mm-hmm. it makes the whole movie kind of shift into perspective that's just a little aside about take shelter she talks about in take shelter um you know getting to work with michael shannon who is such mm-hmm. an intimidating presence so she knew that they needed to establish this husband and wife dynamic from the get go And because she was slightly intimidated on meeting him, the first day she did, she ran up to him and hugged him because she wanted to establish (laughs) this immediate sort of like, okay, we're together, husband and wife. So that was her way of just kind of expediting and getting right into the meat of it. Can you imagine just being like, just going to run up and hug him? Yes, what I'm going to do. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely not the most huggable presence, but uh, yeah, that's a a big choice in and of itself, which I love. Yeah, exactly. So so she's at like the most prestigious film festival in the world with one movie, and another movie she's there with, The Tree of Life, wins the Palme d'Or, the (sighs) big award winner. And it's just, it's so cool because, again, that was your first exposure to her, my first exposure to her, but Al Pacino, who had already worked with her, on Salome, Pacino recommends Chastain to Terrence Malick. And Terrence Malick, based on the strength of that recommendation, auditions Chastain. She gets the part. It's really good casting to cast someone who she's playing the personification of Grace mm-hmm. against such a big movie star because everyone knows who Brad Pitt is. But I had never seen her and I just could not take my eyes off of her. And if we're going to talk about Tree of Life, I always want to give a little shout out to those first 20 minutes, which not a lot of people talk about, but it's when, you know, they find out their son has died, they're older. It's just so interesting that we're introduced to them that way. And then we go back farther. But 
there's so much to unpack there in those opening minutes and like what her mother, mother mother-in-law says to her. It's just, ah, God. And those first opening moments always pulled me in. And then when we go back, she's this much warmer, more open presence. But yeah, I I just love her work in this movie so much. And watching her work in Terrence Malick's style, Mm -hmm. because a movie like this, there's so much improvisation in terms of what we're filming. There's always a reason behind it. But a lot of it as watching the movie is her just playing with these kids Mm -hmm. and just being surrounded by life itself. What's so wonderful and so alive about her watching her do this is that everything she has is already there. Her infatuation with her children, with nature, she's relishing it in its most simplistic way, and that's what makes it magnetic. There's, it's not an actor searching for something to do. It's an it's almost like an exercise in an acting class as to like, you know, when you're crawling around the floor, imagining <laughs> playing pretend that, you know, this this box over here is some type of actual meaningful thing to you. And it, but this is so great because she doesn't need a box. She's got nature and she's got these children and she's got Terrence Malick. You know, a lot of movies build up to this, these huge emotional payoffs and climaxes and there's arguments or whatever it is. But it's like this whole movie and her whole character builds up to that butterfly, like dancing. On yeah. Her, and she's just kind of playing with it, which, you know, is not that hard to recreate with CGI. It just wouldn't be like, OK, Jessica, just like you're playing with a butterfly but that's not what they're there for mm-hmm. you know that's not the exercise there and i also love when she stops the her the baby from throwing the toy at the other kid and it's like no and you can tell like there's virtually no way you could have rehearsed that because yeah. you can't train a baby to do that so and this her reaction you're like oh that's what that's why malik shoots the way he does and tells his stories the way he does because he's looking for those and enough of those moments if he captures enough of those truthful moments then he's got a movie yep it's just it's a tough thing to do because i can imagine as an actor if you're not prepared going into that world you could absolutely flounder oh i think her theater background helps a lot in terms of embracing that and i think that's why she shines so depending on who you talk to the biggest movie of her breakout year 2011 is the help it's what she's nominated for an oscar for she eventually loses to her co-star from The Help, Octavia Spencer. They're also great friends. So it's a, it's actually a really, really touching moment when Christian Bale gives out the Oscar to Octavia Spencer and Chastain like helps her to the stage. Oh, it's just so nice. But for the movie itself, you know, she's in it for 17 minutes. She's, again, it's like checking boxes because this Celia Foote is way different than the other characters she has played so far. The very bubbly, very gregarious and type A. And it doesn't sound like that's much like her personality herself. So she, you can tell she really dove into this and just had a lot of fun stepping into Celia and thereby stepping out of herself. 100%. It's an actor at work. This is a complete character performance that she has crafted from you know, everything down to the way she walks, to her her vocal intonations, her tonal inflections. It's just very specific work. So she has that big year, and she has mentioned, I think she even says this in the Sam Jones podcast, that 
if she sets out post 2011 to live up to that, you are destined to fail. You just can't do that. So what we get then is the kind of evolution of a career that has a lot of specific choices around a lot of different genres. So the first up is 2012's Lawless, where she's opposite Tom Hardy. I, I'd only seen this once actually in the theater, so I rewatched it for this. And he's still in like his total Bane mode with the voice and she... I, the movie's just kind of a mess and like all the guys in there are kind of a mess. I think that's the point. Like Guy Pierce, God, what is he doing? But my, my <laughs> point is like she's she's definitely like a secondary or third character. So I damn man, that movie's just something else. Those guys are Shia LaBeouf is like he's just hammered the whole time, I guess, man. Anyway, that's lawless. But that's one of those things that that, you know, she she's very, very vocal about um women's roles and mm-hmm. what they should be, what they could be. And this was 2012. This is still a time where women were still doing the, that same type of role. And it takes to someone who's doing that role like her to realize enough. Like, this is not the direction we need to keep going. And that's, that's I think, just her experience. I mean, she she definitely changes the landscape. Yeah. And, you know, I actually, I think it's kind of good to open this up a little bit because, uh, I mean, I'm not going to lie, like my main issue with this movie is that she has a, a really like needless extended scene where she's topless and walking toward the camera. And I remember being like, do we still have to do this? Yeah. Like, is this is this something directors to, like this has nothing to do with anything? I don't know why she I thought this in the theater. I, I was like, I don't know why she did this. I don't. Am I reading too much into this? And then definitely, you know, we're almost a decade later now rewatching it for this. I'm like, oh, OK, this this just feels like a breaking point of uh, you said it really well. Like, okay, uh, enough with, you know, I can play this role and keep my shirt on the whole time and it's fine. And that's, that was definitely my thinking of watching it, but yeah, good point. So now we get into late 2012 and there's a lot of hype around Catherine Bigelow's next movie, Zero Dark Thirty. Bigelow was the first female to win best director. She went for the Hurt Locker a few years before the movie, it's, it's a big movie. It's a big deal. It's about the hunt for Osama bin Laden. There's a lot of controversy around the movie before it's released, which in hindsight really, really sucks because it did. I mean, I remember it really, really hurt that movie that her, she didn't deserve any of that. But here she's playing a CIA analyst, Maya, who's very, very stoic, very dry, direct, task oriented. And I liked her and other stuff that I had seen. I had watched Tree of Life by this point a few times. When I saw her in Zero Dark Thirty, I went, here's a true star-making performance. This is someone that is going to be around for a long time. I had not seen this register of strength. Like when she's screaming at Kyle Chandler, it's like, whoa, this is a brand new actor, like being born before my eyes. And I love the ease when she's having dinner with Jennifer Eel. I mean... Marking all those numbers on Mark Strong's window, lunch with Candolfini, you know, I'm the motherfucker that found this place. It's like, ah, she's great. I think so much of the success of her performance in this movie is due to the writing. She, she doesn't talk that much, mm-hmm. but every line that she has reveals exactly who she is and where she's at emotionally and her arc is incredible. You know, when she first arrives there, Kyle Chandler asks her, how, how do you like in Pakistan? And she just came from a torture scene. And she goes, it's kind of fucked up. Yeah. And just kind of like that. But it, yeah. it affects her. Like, she, she is a pretty, like, you know, she's a tough cookie, even at the start. 
But these torture scenes are having an effect on her. She just got here. As the movie keeps going, this search that she's on, it, it wanes on her. Like, she doesn't stop, but she's tired. She's on edge. And where she's at, the, gauging that emotional temperature, is where we are as an audience. So finally, going from it's a little fucked up to I'm the motherfucker that found this place, mm-hmm. that tells you everything that you need to know about her. And it's all through the writing. When James Gandolfini is asking her, what have you done? Like, you've been working here for 12 years. What have you done outside of Bin Laden? She was nothing. nothing. Absolutely nothing. This is it. You completely feel that that's what has been happening this entire time. And that's her performance. That's her carrying that emotional weight all throughout every frame. And then finally, when it's all over, she's on the plane. I See, this is a good, great question because this, is, th- th- this movie is a very, very literal movie up until that moment. Because when she gets on that plane by herself, the hunt's over. She succeeded. <laughs> Spoiler, folks, Bin Laden died. Awesome. What a country. <laughs> she gets on this plane and, and the guy's basically, you're the only one here. You're the only one on the manifest. Where do you want to go? And she starts to cry. Do you, th- like my take on it is she has no idea what she's going to do with the rest of her life now. Like she spends so much time here that I felt it was like, I don't want to leave this chase. What the fuck am I supposed to do? That's all I've ever known. Best 12 years. I don't want to leave it. Some people I've talked to are like, it's relief. Finally, I accomplished it. It's so beautiful because it's it's completely up to interpretation. What was yours? Both. Uh, a complete and both. mix of both. The, um, um, okay, here we go. Um, the most depressed I've ever been in my life was after a great relief of something. Yeah. It was like releasing a movie and the festival circuit and it's out and then going home that night and going, what do I do now? Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been working so long for this. Like what, what happens? And no one teaches you that. No one teaches you that when you've done the thing that you've been working so hard to do, that there can be a great emptiness on the other side of that, a great loneliness. I'll speak for myself. And I get that from her. This is the only, she's recruited out of high school and this is the only thing she's ever done Job well done, mission accomplished. No one is ever going to know your name. We don't know who did that. She's based on a real person. No one actually knows who you are. So this isn't, you're not doing this for the credit. But I also think there's a huge sense of relief in doing something because, you know, I'm talking about I made a movie. Like that doesn't do uh, the entire world good. (laughs) She got Osama bin Laden killed. So there's got to be some relief in, okay, like not only did I do my job, like, my country certainly, but this whole world is inarguably safer now because of it. So I think it's I think it's a mix of both. I think it is an incredibly bold choice to have that in the movie because that scene got a lot of shit from people and it was easy for people to beat up on it because you don't know anything about Maya. We don't know anything yep. about her backstory. We don't we don't ever see we hear her like reference dating once and the only thing she says is like I'm not the girl who fucks. So that's basically she doesn't date. She's it's the job. She's about the job. When the only time we are privy to a little emotion from Maya is in the final frames of the movie, I think that can be easy for people to gang up on, but 
the the kind of feedback you got like she was nominated for the oscar she absolutely should have won she lost to jennifer lawrence for silver linings playbook which i was rooting for chastain the whole time but i didn't think she was gonna win and people like okay this is tricky so hear me out but if a man played this performance Mm -hmm. it probably would have won him an oscar and it would have been this great authoritative thing and i think kind of what you we were talking about for lawless how that was kind of breaking down one barrier even if she's behind the scenes like all right i'm not doing this shit anymore zero dark 30 is like nah well, i'm allowed to play a role like this too like yep. you don't have to i don't have to be weeping about my breakup or whatever the fuck like i'm allowed to play this how i want to play it and play a woman who's just about her job it's it's really it's a really really good movie i love this movie so much i wish I, I wish it would get like a big cultural reappraisal because it did have a rocky release, which was not which was not fair to uh, the movie. But yeah, in terms of character strength, I don't know if she's played anyone stronger than Maya. And I, I just love it. And it doesn't feel put on. It doesn't feel like no. it, this is a performative type of thing that we're trying to say. Like she literally just brought her work to the role that was written and it happened to be a woman. Yeah, like it was almost like, you know, I feel like a movie like this now, it's trying to champion that message where she was she was just doing this badass thing before it was cool. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Like even if she didn't know she was kind of breaking down barriers, she's doing it just by the strength of her performance. And if that means she has to catch shit for it, then. I mean, it sucks because that's what happens, but she is such a good actor when she is on and she's so on and so present in this. And and you said like it's nothing about the performances put on, which was well said. I just wanted to make a note of how difficult it is to not only play the smartest person in the room, mm-hmm. but you're playing that person knowing you're the smartest person in the room. Any room Maya walks into, she's the smartest person in there. She's not allowed to express that because she's the newbie and She's a woman in a very traditionally male-dominated industry. It's just so fucking cool that she's doing all this stuff behind the scenes. And she like the reason why all this happened is because of her. And I think she plays it incredibly. And one scene, I know we're talking a lot about this, but but it's worth so- oh, well. talking about too. Yeah, it is worth that one moment, and this is why I think the writing is so good, is because it's so sparse. That's why, like, even like that scene where you're talking about where she's like, I'm not the girl who fucks. If you're an actor reading mm-hmm. a script, you see that line, boom. That's something very important about me that I need to know and carry. That's what she said she looks for the most yep. in scripts is what is said about her by other people and what yep. she says about herself. It's and you've said that that's really important for character development. Super important. She when the when she asked Kyle Chandler, who is the CIA director, and that mission kind of goes kaput, he loses his job. And she mm-hmm. apologizes. She's like, I fucked you on that. I'm really sorry. He just walks off because that that's really it. Like he, he was done. But the way that she apologized for it was just very human. And I think that actually speaks more to how dynamic of a character she was because that's just a reality. It, there, there, it was not a, a pleading apology. It was not like, what can I do? It's just a, an acknowledgement. I have nothing else to say, but I'm sorry. Very difficult to play the... DC stiff it's really not like how you say it it's the little that you say there's just there's not a lot going on and people changing jobs 
and these go- big government agencies happens all the time. It's like, oh, all right, see ya. And then you just move on and you go and just the the stoicism of all that, it's so, so lived in and so well. I don't know what she did to prepare for this, but I, this to me is one of her most lived in performances. It's so natural. 100%. So great. So her next film after that, after Zero Dark Thirty, is it's not a very good horror movie. It's this movie Mama. But I just want people to just kind of keep this in the back of your mind till a little later because this movie is produced by Guillermo del Toro. And it kind of proves that, you know, she did Mama deliberately. She wanted to choose a role that was unlike other stuff she had played. And it's just not always about the individual movie. It's also who you meet. And that's a good example of that. We'll touch on more of that later. And then next up is really exciting for me because this is the time I actually got to meet or at least be in the very presence of Jessica Chastain because I went to a screening at the AMC Sunset 5 in West Hollywood for, for this weird thing called the disappearance of Eleanor Rigby, him and her. And what this was and is is two separate films about one couple who have endured a tragedy and... For one version, her, you get to see the entire thing from Jessica Chastain's point of view, what they've gone through, what she's going through now. And then the other version, him, you get to see the whole thing from James McAvoy's point of view. So the whole like backstory of this movie is really interesting. It's written and directed by this guy, Ned Benson. Jessica Chastain and Ned Benson had dated for quite a long time. They met on the film festival circuit in the early 2000s. And after she made it and now she's nominated for Oscars, She's like, you know, that script you had when we were together, like, do you want to actually try to make it now? Like, let's do it. So they do. And the result is a really cool experiment that I don't, I don't know if stuff like this is going to happen anymore theatrically. Like right now, this would go anyone, any producer who greenlights this is going to put this on Netflix. Like, yeah, we'll do it will just be two episodes, right? We'll do him, then her. But to see these both in the theater back to back, and then she did a Q&A after. Oh, my God. It was just it was so cool. It's it's a really great depiction of a woman in turmoil that's how i saw it in its I, I suppose truest form which was her and then him and then there's a really cool q a after and i hadn't seen it in a while but re-watching it again for this i was reminded that there is a third version called them and well maybe you can get into this one a little bit so i i remember this movie being on netflix forever with him and her yep i always always wanted to watch it because to me it looked like an actor's wet dream <laughs> i just i just never watched it and i'm i'm kicking myself because i for this podcast the only option that i had it readily available to me was disappearance of eleanor rigby them but when i started watching it i texted you immediately and i go i am getting all of the actor tingles that inspire me why i love acting so much was coming at me between james mcavoy and jessica chastain the chemistry that these two had it 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 was just a thing where i i was following the thread that was happening but i didn't even care because i just wanted to see what was going to happen next what were these two actors going to do in their next scenes it's beautiful I'm gl- I am glad you enjoyed them. I, I realized that I had never seen them, so I put it on. For I watched her and him and then them, and you really got to get to her at least if you can because them, it just, 
it takes the heart out of the whole thing. It Ugh. every scene is cut short. You know, if you combine him and her as is, it's a 200-minute movie. And then Harvey Weinstein sees this at a festival, and he goes, I'll release it, but I'm going to do this mashed-up version. So he cuts, you know, damn near 80 minutes out of it, and it it's just, it's like the it's like the lifeblood of it. it oh, man. it's I'm glad you liked it. The, the heart, I suppose, is there of the performances, but if you watched her, it's like, oh, my God. she It just gives it more room to breathe, the room that it needs. Oh no, I I'm seeing both of him and her. Like I I enjoyed them way too much as its own. So to find out that there is so much more life and heart in him and her separately. And the whole entire time I knew there was a him and her and I was like, "Man, I got to see these." Mm-hmm. But just watching them having no previous experience to it, what I got from it was two actors having the time of their fucking lives because James McAvoy just give some shout out respect to him that dude is right with her the the opening Mm -hmm. scene of them and the way they are running through a park and fall into each other's arms and you know are just they're in love it's so I, I agree about all the acting but it's so much cooler when you find out whose head that is in because you oh, don't know if that scene is see, in her cool. head or his. That's yeah. what's so fucking cool because there's the dichotomy of the relationship. It's very specific, but it is different according to him and according to her. It's very different. And if you're watching them, you do not get that you because they made the choice. There are a few scenes in the movie that are seen you know, in both chapters, in both films. And you don't get that in them. He, they made the decision. We're only going to show it this one way, and that's completely. It's it's rewriting the emotional language of the movie. So there's so and and honestly, the really weird thing when I was rewatching her, McAvoy to me is even giving a better performance in her than he is in him. I I don't want to get too much into it to like give it away, but the way she views him allows him to give a slightly more lived-in performance than in his own chapter. It's really fucking cool, and you lose all that if you see them. That's all. Oh, I, I cannot wait. I, I am, I'm tingling. This is... Yeah, you'll have to report back. Yeah. <laughs> but really quick as we finish up for this one, um, shout out to Bill Hader. Oh, I yeah, love he's him. He's so good. I've always he, loved no him. No matter what he does, as soon as he shows up, I am instantly on board. Speaking of Sam Jones, I believe it was on his podcast where... Bill Hader realized he loved film at the exact same moment I did. And that was when Travis Bickle makes the phone call and taxi driver to Sybil Shepard and the camera just pans right slowly because you and just looks down the hallway and you because you can't bear to watch him. I was I mean, I knew I loved movies before the first time I saw that, but that was the first time in a movie that I went, oh, something like a director made the choice to do that. I didn't know. That's what I thought you were just supposed to look at the actor. I didn't know you could like do that. And now, oh, and he and I remember hearing him on a podcast say that. And I was like, whoa, that's so cool. That was when it happened to me, too. (laughs) And we were like the same age. Dude, I know we must have talked about this because I know like for so much of there I go, Mm -hmm. like there was like I I brought up that tracking shot because we weren't doing it like going from showing somebody here to then absence space. But it was the same idea, the tracking shot. But when I was in directing education, that was the scene that I something clicked. Yeah. It was that exact scene where I go, oh, 
okay, I think I get something now. Yeah. I did not know that Bill Hader felt that way. I knew that you yep. and I did. Yep. Yeah. That must speak to something, man, because if three people. Well, he's a huge cinephile. He's huge, he's, I mean, if huge. you watch Barry, you can, you can get yeah. that. Yeah. But you, we're getting way off track of Chastain here, but that's okay. But. This is important yes, shit. Yes, I've. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Because he that was the first time I realized, oh, the they want me the camera wants me. I'm supposed to be an audience member because I'm in embar- like I don't even want to watch this guy, but I'm also like living in his head. Like I cuz I they literally don't want me to watch this. Like he can't even form a sentence. He's, "Oh, yeah, did you um did you did you get the the flowers?" Uh uh to hear that that wasn't really it was kind of an afterthought on the day like yeah we're just gonna move the camera that way but that's it speaks so much and that's with de niro doing nothing that's the camera moving the camera we can't watch him and yeah so we that was when this entire fucking medium of film clicked into place for me and i went oh my god you can like you can tell a story that way holy crap i didn't i didn't know that that's so cool (laughs) there's just no other words that's just so cool i know Another huge influence for film for me and what made me love them even more was the work of Igmar Bergman. His, you could say, muse, he had a few of them, was the great Liv Allman. And I had never seen her filmed version of the play Miss Julie. This is a play from 1888, and it's about a wealthy daughter, played by Chastain, who tries to seduce her father's valet, played by Colin Farrell. And it's two-plus hours of Farrell and Chastain just duking it out and it it was pretty much exactly what i thought it was going to be we've talked about our favorite you know movies adapted from plays that was one of our first episodes this wouldn't be on either of our lists i don't think but chastain really really brought it to me and i I, like i said i love seeing her flexing her theater muscle and i thought it was i know that she has just an impossible amount of reverence for Liv allman so it was cool just imagining them working together making this and yeah you said it perfectly this this was a hundred percent example of a theater actor doing what i mean even though it is a film but the the approach the tactics Mm -hmm. the 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 physicality everything that she's doing in this just tells you okay this is a theater actor they they know what they're doing and her relishing in the language of August Strindberg is beautiful to listen to. It it feels like you're going crazy with her. Oh yeah. She oh, yeah. you know starts one way and finishes another and carrying the thread of that character even written even if you were to do this as a play is a challenge. I understood and felt what was happening with her even if the movie kind of doesn't do it justice her performance does yeah and i remember when the movie started like we're a half hour in and i was like oh man i didn't want to i didn't know it was going to be like this like she's just he's kind of like this meek rich daughter like uh, i don't know and it just it doesn't take you there you get to go you nope. get to have a lot of fun with her you get to go on a huge huge roller coaster that I, I got a little uh, Jenna, woman under the influence in there, just kind of really getting down, down, down and not being afraid to sink low and, you know, do a scene from like the floor. And yeah, it was it was really good, dedicated work. I always talk about breath when we talk about actors like this. They're like there's a there's a scene at the very end where she has this crazy monologue and she's holding a, a machete. Yeah. It's the I think it's the most powerful moment acting moment for sure of the movie. 
but her voice oh my god is on a register that's so low and primal but she's completely in touch with it she's completely in tune with her breath and the accent that she's putting on that's just so much work to to be able to get to that emotional place all while not losing your accent and having your breath fuel all of that. It, it, the movie is worth watching just to get to that payoff. I think that's kind of the reason for the text is whoever's mm-hmm. playing that part, you get to have this payoff because I'm so glad we're talking about this because if you, what, what we're referencing is think of Zero Dark Thirty when she's screaming at Kyle Chandler in the hallway. And that is like, whoa, a burst of intensity that just like comes. And now we're talking like a significantly more amplified version of that, but still perfectly in key. And it is so easy. And we've all seen an actor do that and go over the top to the point where we're almost like, all right, <laughs> calm down, calm down. Especially if it's an American doing a British voice, which traditionally doesn't go that well. And I was like, I got just shivers and was like, yeah. oh my God, she, she was able to get there and it's still totally, totally believable. And that is the moment of the movie. Yep, it's one of the moments of her career. So after 2011, that breakthrough year, she gets some really big leading parts like we talked about, Zero Dark Thirty, Eleanor Rigby, Miss Julie. What I kind of love is that she settles into more supporting work to be able to work with our genuine artists. And a good example is taking, I mean, it's still, it's a meaty part, but Murph in Interstellar, which is, directed by Christopher Nolan, of course. And when I listened to her on Sam Jones' podcast, it kind of sounded like she did this movie just to be in the Nolan world. And the way he works is very specific. And I don't know, I appreciated that. I appreciate that she was allowed to put some improvisation into her work, like the kiss with Topher Grace was totally just made up by her on the spot. That's great. And, you know, re-watching it, I've never watched that movie with a note of just pay attention to Jessica Chastain. And that was kind of fun for this. And like you talk about this moment before business, her first scene in this movie is that video call to Matthew McConaughey. And she is brought in a a literal lifetime before recording that. And that is, that's probably my favorite scene of hers in the movie, which is so odd because we're not in person with her. She makes sense out of, Things that should not make sense. Mm-hmm. The, the end scene where she connects that the watch in the bookcase. <laughs> you can be honest. I know you think it's a little fucking silly. You can be honest. It's a little. It's a little far fetched. I love for my taste. For my taste. Yeah. But but that, that's just me personally. That has nothing to do with what I'm going to say about her though. Is because I think the reason why that scene works is because of her discovery of it. Now, mm-hmm. that's a very hard thing to do on the day. Like, okay, you understand what this scene is, but you need to like walk over to the bookcase, look at a watch, be confused, look outside the window. That's just a lot of nothing that then you have to make into everything. Because if she doesn't make that discovery and realization. We as the audience do. And let's face it, that's the payoff of the movie. <laughs> Sometimes something in a movie, we do view it as silly, but the person conveying it can still be compelling. Yes. If, if the acting wasn't that good, then 
the movie to us, the movie or the scene, whatever it is, could fall apart. And it's like, absolutely. Uh, whenever, whenever I think about that, about what an actor has to do, I think of um, Boogie Nights. Because when Eddie Adams from Torrance, not Dirk Diggler, when Eddie Adams <laughs> from Torrance is arguing with his mom, the script is very, very basic. It's like, what is your problem? Maybe I'll run where you can never find me. Please don't be mean to me. It's just the corniest dialogue, but these two are, I mean, damn near ripping each other's heads off, and it's one of the most compelling movie arguments I've ever seen. So, yeah, it's what you do with it. It's okay if something's a little silly. Interstellar is a big movie with some pretty radical concepts, so it's really cool that even if you view something as maybe not the most believable, that she's able to sell you. That's a hard thing to do. Very hard. Oh, man. So next up, you know, we're talking about, like, breaking down barriers, and we've referenced already a few movies where she is the the dutiful wife who's there to support her husband. And it's like she reads the script for A Most Violent Year. And whether it was written this way or she brought this to it, it's like she sees the script and goes, <laughs> fuck that whole stereotype. I'm bringing something new to this. And oh my God, I just, I absolutely love this movie. We got into it when we on our A24 podcast, but I love this kind of Lady Macbeth type of shit where woman is like secretly running stuff behind the scenes and this is a fantastic 1970s movie that came out in 2014 like this movie is so fucking good she is so on board with the tone the pacing the style to me rewatching it I think she's the most powerful person in the entire movie. And she we is. never get to see her flex her full potential. But those little threats of like, do I need to call my father? She carries so much weight. Sometimes that weight is like realized with the deer in the street. Like, but most of the time it's when she's behind a calculator. Yep. You know, this is her first time with Oscar Isaac. And she's just playing this like chain smoking book cooking wife that uh, the hair, the outfits. It's just it's a great performance. And I know this is one of your favorites, too. She's a queen. Queen. Man, yes. she is a queen and she carries herself as such. And the costuming, big giant, the coats that she wears. Mm-hmm. And also, I'm talking about her physicality. The power in her stillness is one of the most compelling things about the movie. When she um walks up, like the they, they're having a birthday party for the kids and and all of a sudden, the FBI shows up with a warrant, mm-hmm. and she walks up to David Oyello. Like, again, tactics. She has something she's going to say here, but the way in is going to be different. So she approaches, at that time, the way a woman should, and I use quotes when I say mm-hmm. that. I'm going to be very polite, disarming. Mm-hmm. Apologetic, very apo- apologetic. All of it. And then just being like, you have to understand, like, you know, you can come in, but we just need to, you know, get these kids out of here. But then once she gets his guard down and she does with a wave of a finger, this was very disrespectful. Everything changed. That is just power. And the way she moves her finger is just such a simple but like intense gesture to make to somebody and when when they're in fights she is completely still Mm -hmm. oscar isaac is a very composed character in here but he can't even match her on composure like she is just a wall 
that you will not break. It's just impressive. Her intelligence, the respect she commands, the boldness, unwavering in all of these ways. God, love it. Yeah, it's great work. It was great to see them, you know, they're they're Juilliard classmates. It's great to see them finally able to live that dream and be in a really, really good movie on screen together. A really, really good movie that nobody saw, God damn it. Yeah, I know. A movie uh, most people saw was her next one, The Martian, directed by Ridley Scott. And I, I mean, maybe it's fitting because she's like the commanding officer of this giant spacecraft. And I... I don't know. She seems she's not joking around much. She's taking the whole thing very, very seriously. And everyone else, even Matt Damon, kind of seems to be having like a blast while making the movie. But I, I mean, but then again, like I don't really recall. I, I've seen it twice and both times um, that I think that the thing what you're talking about is there is just a complete and maybe on purpose separation between that crew and Matt Damon. Yeah, Cause it's it's the Matt Damon show. But none of the crew and what's going on with them really kind of stand out to me. Yeah, I, you can't really say like it's the fault of her at nah, all, not or at all. anyone in it. It's just it's anyone who isn't Matt Damon in that movie isn't going to be given as much to do. And yeah, so the next one is a big deal for Chastain and for us because Guillermo del Toro's Crimson Peak is the first film you and I ever saw in the movie theater together. Truth. Big deal. Oh, what a time. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, you sit down for a Guillermo del Toro movie, you kind of have an idea of what you're getting into. But I do really like just right up front that, you know, Mama is not as good of a movie as Crimson Peak, but she met del Toro on the set of Mama and he thought of her for this movie. He actually offered her to play Edith, that oh. Maya part, which I thought is really cool. And she's like, um, can I have Lucille instead? And I just, I'm so glad she did that because this is. I, I don't know if she's ever played anything like this before or since. Just evil, mean. She's the character's into some things I can't really talk about because it would give the movie away. But it's like, whoa, where this thing goes. I mean, like I mentioned like a while ago now, but her introduction at that piano and the way she's dressed, she is t completely embodying this gothic movie mentality. I just I absolutely love her in this movie. Had a real good time re-watching it and paying attention to her for this mm -hmm. episode because I, I hadn't seen it since we saw it in the theater. She's really, really loving to chew the shit out of the scenery in this. And it works. It works for me. To the way that you're talking about that piano sequence, you know, she she very much portrays like, like you could very generalize and be like, it's a witch. Mm -hmm. Some of that imagery, I think, pops up, but it's also the fun of it. But the way she carries herself in those pivots and turns and like the way she yep. waves her finger with the ring and this is all very graceful movement but the motivation behind it for her character is so sinister that it just makes every movement she makes bone chilling oh my god one of my favorite little moments there's a scene where um she is feeding uh the main character and um, porridge from a from a bowl, and and she's telling this story about how she's doing it, but she's letting the spoon scrape across the top of the yeah. bowl, and you hear the glass on glass, like yeah. as she Ugh. then puts it into her mouth, like just little things like that to just make it so uh, unnerving. But I have to say. I have not been more terrified of a woman in a movie 
in a long time more than her in this. Nice. She scares the <laughs> shit out of me. Like, like, yeah. And, and it builds, it builds and builds until finally when there's like the big giant fight at the end and there, and she's chasing. Mm-hmm. I was absolutely terrified by her. Like, God, she's just so good, man. She's just really fucking good. I don't want to. I'm not trying to be like inappropriate here. I'm I'm saying this for a reason. But there's a scene when she's watching someone be killed in this, and her character is like getting off on it. Yeah, and that is not something we've seen Jessica Chastain like really do before or since. And it's this is not uh, an Oscar type of movie. He did that two years later with The Shape of Water, you know. And I I just appreciate the kind of like really dark R rated mentality to this i i hadn't really remembered that about the movie like you can always tell in her work that no matter what type of character she's playing she is finding the joy in playing and this is just one where it's just like in your face and it's so so great Mm -hmm. next year she reunites with her director from the debt john madden this is for miss sloan and i didn't know if you had any thoughts on miss sloan here Miss Sloan is um, a very DC, very politically driven movie. So it's got that type of um, West Wing movement. Everyone's walking and talking at Mm -hmm. the same time. I think she exudes a lot of power in this. But I think ultimately this movie to me is this is her in training for what will end up being Molly's game. Yeah, I think that's really well said. I remember... I saw this when it came out, but then when I saw Molly's game next, I went, I went, oh, okay. So that was like, yeah, that it's exactly what you said. Like Miss Sloan was preparation for this really, you know, she's in almost every scene of Miss Sloan. She's also in almost every scene of Molly's game, but it's more of like a real actor's clinic to step up to the plate of Molly's game. And we'll get there in a sec. 2017. She is actually in three movies that are all based on true stories, and she's the lead of all of them. I mean, that's a busy year. First is The Zookeeper's Wife. That's based on a popular book. True story about a husband and a wife who sheltered Polish Jews during World War II. I actually like that movie more than I thought I would. I thought it held up a little better. Woman Walks Ahead. That's an A24 movie. Another true story. This one's about a painter who painted a portrait of Sitting Bull in 1890. It's I did watch it for our A24 pod. It's very patient and deliberate. It looks great. But then all of this, Miss Sloan especially, is really teeing up for Molly's Game, which is the first movie Aaron Sorkin directs. Here, it's a true story. She's playing high-stakes poker host Molly Bloom, and it's in and of itself a thing to step into Sorkin's world and to be able to be willing to do that and then to be able to do it so effectively. And I actually really like her in this movie. I think I liked her and this movie a lot more than most people, but I thought she was, I think she's very strong. I love the evolution of her character. The only thing, and I've always said this, I wish, um, wish we could see her fall down a little more with the, the drugs and the booze. I never really get a sense of like how bad or desperate it got. And uh, it is my kind of understanding that it, it was a little bit worse than the movie depicts, but you know, I mean, whatever. It's still, it's a really entertaining movie that moves by damn quickly. And she is a boss lady with grace in this movie. The way that she deals with men, the way that she deals with the situations that she has to pick herself up from, mm-hmm. she just owns every bit of this movie in the way that Molly Bloom has to own what happens to her throughout the course of it. I wanted to ask you, what do you think of the voiceover in this movie? I'm fine with it. I don't want to see every single movie 
voiced out this way yeah. to where every damn thing is being explained. But I'm also someone who is obsessed with process. It doesn't really matter what the process is. If you're explaining a process to me of how you start like an illegal poker game and you're doing it with that much detail and it's cut together that entertainingly. So I guess my short answer is it worked for me, but I can definitely see why people would have reservations. I like Aaron Sorkin though, man. I do. I do too. And I, I like the voiceover um, yeah. for the most part as a device. I am not on that side of things that thinks that voiceover should never be a thing. But how much of that voiceover in terms of like the preparation, like she found in the playing of it? Because obviously when you're in your scenes, you don't have that voiceover going on. And I also wonder the difference between when you record it. Is it something you record first or is it something you record after and how much influences the other? Yeah. So much of her voiceover is so telling to who she is, like just the opening skiing accident. Yeah. The drama is all in her voice and in the delivery, like her cadence, her, you can hear how she believes things, her points of view on things, the way that she just kind of fires. It's all in the voiceover. So I just wonder that that balance and dynamic of voiceover to character portrayal visually. Yeah, it's a for movies that are voiceover reliant like that, it is really interesting to do some research in what was recorded first, what was recorded second, and you never know which one's gonna inform the other. So yeah, yeah. it's a really cool, it's a really cool concept. My favorite voiceover story is um Martin Sheen for Apocalypse Now. He couldn't get into it. John Milius, the, you know, really hardened writer, director, um, he walked over, he was in the recording sessions and he walked over to Martin Sheen and handed him a gun, like a loaded, <laughs> he's like, you fucking feel that? There's six men in your hands right there. Now you say those lines. And he did it. So he uh, does the whole line, just like chain, or he does the whole voiceover, you know, chain smoking and holding this gun. And that's in like the Millis documentary. It's really cool. Anyway. After Molly's Game, which she really should have been uh, nominated for an Oscar for, oh well. We referenced this in the beginning. Like, it's not, it's okay to do some get your dollars up movies like Dark Phoenix or It Chapter 2 or The Huntsman, Winter's War or Ava, which is on Netflix and which we both watched. And I, I got to tell you, man, I had like a laugh watching Ava when I realized that more people have likely seen that movie than the spirits of Elder Rigby, uh, <sighs> Miss Julie, most violent year combined because Ugh. that's the power of when Netflix says this movie is one of the top yeah. streaming, top 10 streaming things like people just watch that shit, even though that all oh, that's a lie, but that's OK. It gets you to watch it. So we'll go right into this is an exciting year, 2021 for Jessica Chastain, because it looks like I mean, I don't know how to call this stuff. I don't know how to handicap this anymore, but it looks like she is being poised to perhaps be nominated for an Oscar and an Emmy. Let's start with the potential Oscar-nominated role. Another true story, The Eyes of Tammy Faye. Here she's playing the wife of Jim Baker, and my God, she is so, so game here. But you actually just saw this like two days ago in the movie theater, and you liked it. So tell us what you thought. And, and my like has grown even more. I, I can't stop thinking good, about it. Good. I went on board. This is a tough movie to talk about because I want, I want to promote this movie too. So obviously I'm not going to get into... I like how we're getting into a lot of these conversations. Yeah, no spoilers. We definitely want people to see it. Yeah. yeah. There's a tone to this movie that's quite over the top 
that I think the two actors of Jessica Chastain and Andrew Garfield, and not everyone else in it really, but those two really champion it, um, they just go for it. It's a stylistic form of acting that I think some people might not get with, but I think this was all intentional. I think this was all part of what the director wanted to do here with with who these two characters were, the acting of this movie. If, if the rest of the movie doesn't do it for you, maybe that's that I, I understand, but you can't deny the acting, but especially the scenes between Garfield and Chastain. It's a blast. Yeah, it's a really audacious tone to set for a movie because it's very, it's just way, it's keyed way, way up here. And yep. I honestly think while watching it, that was one of the things that sort of turned me off to it initially. And then I had to, it's always a dangerous thing for me personally when when a movie starts doing what I didn't expect it to do. Yeah. Because that's not the movie's fault, that's my fault. So I, it sometimes, literally during a movie, I'll like give a course correct and go, hey, you don't, you don't have to love this movie, but try to meet it on its own terms. And this, yeah, it's just my dad saw it the day after I did. And he, I, I was like, oh, yeah, I think I, I think you'll like it, you know. And he loved it. I mean, he yeah. remembers that story of Jim Baker, that whole collapse. He liked it, it sounds like, as much as you. And he thought it was really, really dialed into a sort of unique level. What she's doing, I mean, she pushes herself very, very far. And it's a really, really good performance. Very dedicated. And it's very understandable that you would feel like that. I I, yeah, I, I yeah. think this movie is a hard sell. Mm-hmm. I, I, But what I appreciated was like they went for it anyways. And I, yeah, I love that. I mean, that's we in 2021, the kind of the stuff you and I like, it almost has to do that. It almost. Yeah, we're going to get more into this as the year as the end of the year wraps up. But like. Now more than ever, like Rotten Tomatoes means absolutely nothing to me. If anything, I've seen so many movies this year that have 60 or less percent on there. And those are the movies I like. And the movies that are getting 97s or whatever, they they just do not interest me. So, uh, you know, okay. So that's one of them. And then another one, a TV version of that is, oh my God. Yeah, here we go, baby. Scenes from a Marriage on HBO, which recently concluded its five episode run. This has Jessica Chastain reteaming with Oscar Isaac. This is a remake of Ingmar Bergman's film from 1973, which we referenced on episode 34 of the podcast, Top 10 of 1973. You remember that episode? Remember anything memorable happening? Yeah, I sure do. Do you? I believe that was my number one, and um, I can't remember what yours was. I think... Hardy fucking har. Anyway... Scenes from a Marriage is, I, I mean, I am a, I love Igmar Bergman. I don't know if that's like uncool to say or whatever. If it just it's the coolest it like, thing to say. Yeah, I, I have studied his movies. I've seen them all. It's insane. This is a perfect reimagining of the material from its very first shot of every episode and what they're doing. I'm not going to reveal what it is. You'll get what I mean when you watch it. Oh my God, I love it. Moreover, Oscar Isaac. Jessica Chastain are on fire in every episode of this. It's like we're talking about the screaming thing and Miss Julie and Zero Dark Thirty, and she has a few sequences in this. That oh, I know. It's just every single episode is a complete clinic in acting because wherever the hell they start temperament-wise, even if they end there, and they might, they might end at the same temperament, what the hell goes on in those 60 minutes in between is like, 
holy sh i mean it's just it's so dedicated and strong really fierce um kind of uncomfortable to watch at times just as the original was because of how strong it was and of course like i don't hear anyone talking about it at all so yeah i don't know i just wish a lot of people could tune into a few of these episodes at least give it the first two the second one you know the first episode to me felt a little bit more like oscar isaac show but whew, episode two is definitely hers but the whole thing i i just loved it it i can't remember the last time i, I was like tuning in every sunday to watch this and i did that for five weeks and i i'm gonna definitely be re-watching it it was it made it really easy to talk about her career because we're ending here. Yeah, I'm loving it. I'm not quite finished yeah. with it. I'm on um, yeah, that's episode okay. four. I'm floored by it because, of course, if you're familiar with Bergman's version of it, you cannot help but see the parallels and how they're different and how they are similar I'll be honest with you, I was very nervous about this because oh, how me too. does anyone try to recreate any Bergman movie, or, or for that matter, but especially this? Man, I got to tell you, I I could not be happier with the way that they're doing it. I think it is a absolute worthy um, retelling, reimagining, whatever you want to call it. It's so good, it can stand next to Bergman's. If you are familiar with Bergman, you absolutely have to watch this because you have to see what they do. It's, it's, it's so fascinating. But if you haven't, and I'm imagining that maybe there are a lot of people that have not seen Bergman's version of it, I'm almost saying go see this. That's fine. And then see Bergman. If you saw Bergman's first, like you have a complete like visceral relationship to it. Mm -hmm. And this one is different. So what would be your visceral reaction to this upon first watch, the new version, and then going back to Bergman's and being taken by that? I would love to see someone see this and then see Bergman. I imagine if you do, if you watch this one first and then Bergman's, when while you're watching Bergman's, you're going to realize how much emphasis he put on the language because yes. the, the HBO one, like it looks nice. They're making very, very good use of that house. Igmar Bergman was someone who made movies that won Oscars for best cinematography, including the year before for Cries and Whispers, 1972, one of the best looking movies ever made. Scenes from a Marriage comes out the next year and is intentionally incredibly drab looking, oh. incredibly flat, and thereby in and of itself forces you to focus on the language. Because in Cries yep. and Whispers, you can have, as you've mentioned, you can have quite a time just staring at those fucking walls, <laughs> those red Christ. walls, like, oh my God. And he doesn't give you that escape and yeah. scenes from a marriage. So yeah, that would be cool. But I, as a big Bergman fan, I wasn't, I know how much Chastain loves Liv Allman. They'd worked together in Miss Julie. Yeah. And I know how much she had talked about Bergman. So I'm like, I think they're going to handle this respectfully. And it deserves to stand alongside Bergman's. So we're going to round it out here. God, that was fun with our top five Chastain. So at coming in at number five, I'm going with the disappearance of Eleanor Rigby. Same. It's number. Oh, nice, nice. At five, and, yeah. And I'm going with five with a bullet because I cannot wait to dive into her and him. I love them so much that I cannot wait to live in it more. And um, that's my number five. Yeah, that would be my caveat. Is it? It would be the disappearance of Eleanor Rigby. Her, her. as my number five. But number four, I'm given to the Tree of Life. 
That is, I mean, I love Tree of Life. I did Molly's game for my number four, which this is going to get really interesting as we go on. So yeah, Molly's game, I love that she carries it. Love the challenge of all the dialogue. So what, how about number three for you? Uh, number three, Zero Dark Thirty. Oh, nice. Okay, okay. Number three for me is, God, it's so hard because I could easily make an argument that this is my number one, but it's a most violent year. Oh, <laughs> dude. Like, I know, I know. Dude, you want to know what's so uh, crazy? A most violent year isn't even on my list. See, there you go. It's, and Tree of Life isn't even on mine. Yeah. That's how tough this shit is. This is The reason uh, I gave it to Tree of Life, just to talk about it really quick, is because of watching her work in Malik's world. Yeah. Because that's just a very, very different thing. And I think of all of those movies of that era he did, I think her performance in that might have been my favorite of anybody's. If we were extending it to six, that would be my number six. But So Most Violent Year was my number three. Now we're... We are at your number two. My number two is Crimson Peak. Nice. Oh, my God. That's awesome. (laughs) For the mere fact of how much she terrifies me in that movie, it's a very visceral reaction I've had both times I've seen that movie. So uh, for that reason alone, I got to give her number two for that. My number two, I guess a bit of a cheat. I could just say episode two, but it's scenes from a marriage. I I don't take these things lightly. Like I know it's really, really early, but if you wanted to pull out one episode because, you know, it's not fair to compare like five hours of TV against a two hour film, but whatever she's, I absolutely, oh man, I love what she did in it. It's good that it was five hours, but part of me is like, can you two do something together like every every five years so that we can all watch it and like watch your amazing chemistry (laughs) because you're great. So number two for me, scenes from a marriage. And now we are at your number one. Number one, baby. Can't believe this. It's the eyes of Tammy Faye. Wow. That's (laughs) great. I I wondered based on your enthusiasm, if it would creep up there. Oh man, that's so cool. My dad is going to love hearing that. Like I love that. I'll text him. It, it's just a complete like I I can't stop thinking about it. I know it's only been a couple of days since I've seen it, but like I don't take that lightly. That the fact that I I didn't just rush into this number one pick. I truly think that that's the best performance I've seen her do. That's going to be really cool then if she can gain some serious like Oscar momentum. I mean, who I come on, who the hell knows? I have no idea anymore. I used to be really good at this stuff, but Not I have anymore, no idea where man. the culture is. I I I don't know. But what I do know is that. She is ready to play the game. That's obvious. Like, do the press, whatever needs to be done. Do the Zoom interviews, whatever needs to be done. I think we're going to, yeah, the campaign. I think we're going to be seeing some of her. And I'm, yeah, I'm for it. I, um, wow, I really love that that's your number one. Mine is Zero Dark Thirty. I I almost like spoiled it when we were talking about it. Like, I knew it was going to be kind of, yeah, kind of an indication of like how long we spoke about that. I don't think she was given, despite an Oscar nomination, I do not think her or that film was given the credit it deserved. And I really, really love the strength of her work in that. Did you have a wild card you wanted to toss out? I actually had Crimson Peak for my wild card, which oh, seemed nice. a bit disingenuous because she is really good in that. But it's I only put it there because as of yet, she hasn't done anything else like that. Which is cool for that performance, but I, I mean, I would just love for her to step into Lucille a little more. I, uh, I loved it. <laughs> I, suppo- I suppose my wild card would be Miss Julie. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Because it's not like the best movie, but she has some mm-hmm. incredible sequences. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah, watching her handle that character from start to finish was a treat. We arrive at the end of our <laughs> epic Jessica Jastain podcast here, which I had no idea who's going to run off this long. Oh, I love it. Yeah, we went for it. 
Yeah, we did. I think you're up first this time there, Haas. Why don't you tell us what we're watching this week? This is a big one for me. Coming off of the last podcast of the scariest movies we've ever seen, I recently, through friends of mine, was subjected to watch a horror movie. I had a relationship to it that may have now have changed my point of view on horror movies. Okay. And the reason I'm saying is I got to say it's because the um, me being not wanting to be scared, but then kind of watching this movie and realizing that, hey, it's just a movie. Mm-hmm. As silly as that sounds, kind of like changed my like point of view on it. So I had a unbelievable time watching a movie called The Lodge with Riley Keogh. Oh, God, that was the last fucking movie I saw uh, before the pandemic hit in the theater. Yep. It did all the things that horror movies do for me that scare me. And I fucking went for it. But then when it was over, I go, that was that was kind of fun. She is so good in that movie. I love so her good. so much. She was just having a lot of fun with that one. Oh, that's cool. When did you watch that? Uh, Like two weeks ago, maybe. Oh, nice. Nice. I'm so yeah. glad you liked it. Yeah, I did. I liked it a lot. And I mean, if you want a, a wild double feature, go watch those directors there. The movie they made before that, Good Night Mommy, which is, oh man, it's really <laughs> kind of the, some of the same themes going on there. But yeah, that's a great, that, The Lodge was the last movie, yeah, that I saw in theaters and the pandemic started like a week later. So that's, yeah, that's my relationship yeah. to that. But I remembered being like, oh, this is a good, it's like a good effective horror movie that got shit on by the pandemic. I think it would have done better. Just like The Way Back. The Way Back got shit on. Horrible timing. Ugh. My What Are You Watching, I found a list of actresses that Chastain loves. Her favorite being Isabella Hubert, who played her mom and the disappearance yeah. of Eleanor Rigby. She's one of my favorite performers, too. My favorite performance from her is whew, it's a great movie by Michael Henneke called The Piano Teacher from 2001. This is one of Brett Easton Ellis' favorite movies, too. Oh, man, it's, it's about a very emotionally complicated piano teacher who falls for one of her students and it's there's way way more to it than that um if you watch it you do not forget it it's on the criterion channel app right now and yeah haneke is one of my favorite directors but when i watch a performance of hubert's like this i kind of watch it going ooh, maybe maybe chastain will like you know do something it's very very dark very sinister kind of masochistic stuff but yeah the piano teacher devilish little movie there Okay, well, that was a big one. We had a lot of fun doing that. I'm so, the eyes of Tammy Faye, number one. Man, I'm going to check yeah. in with you as the year, you know, winds down here and see how you're still feeling about it. Because that, the way we're going now, like that should be out on streaming or whatever soon. I mean, it's got to be. So I'll be really interested for people to check that one out and hopefully she can build some Oscar momentum. But if you're watching Jessica Chastain stuff, we were available to watch a lot of this on streaming platforms. Let us know at W-A-Y-W underscore podcast. But as always, thanks for listening and happy watching. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. You can watch my films and read my movie blog at alexwithrow.com. NicholasDostal.com is where you can find all of Nick's film work. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at whatareyouwatchingpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, you can find us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W underscore podcast.
Next time, we're going to talk about our favorite movies of 2011, one of the best single years of movies since we've been alive. Stay tuned. I'm too scared. I get why you get scared sometimes. Oh, I get scared. The wind blows. (laughs) You know what I... Yeah, I know. You know what I forgot to do for the scariest movies podcast i didn't have a chance to do my buffalo bill impression so oh man oh yeah wouldn't she a great big fat person (laughs) anyway okay you're like spot on when you do them i always try to go for like the the beeline yeah what was the ace venture one that i love uh i can't remember the the, i was saying it to you oh kept gaining on me and gaining on oh yeah You, you you threw that one out to me one time like randomly and i of yeah. course i got it but i was like what a strange and awesome like quote from the movie of all things to kind of quote from it and this is just one where it's just like in your face and it's so so great mm-hmm. i'm gonna have to refill my fucking water here nurse um nurse okay <laughs> <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> it got me. Oh yeah, gotcha. <laughs>